episode of the Classic Pickup Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whips, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Classic Pickup Supplies, your number one Ford and Chev pickup parts supplier. Mention Classic Truck for a 10% discount off your first order. Classic Pickup Supplies, located in Coolum Beach, Queensland. Call 07 5446 2667. Or visit their website, www.classicpickupsupplies.com.au. Classic Pickup Supplies, dedicated to the restoration and preservation of the pickup. Episode 19, Troy Brody. Troy's a New South Wales engineer whose business is called Fink Engineering, and he caught up with us for a good chat on the current state of play in New South Wales. I know we have a lot of listeners up in New South Wales who are mid-build or about to build and I, I think you'll find a lot of very useful information in this podcast. We still plan to catch up with Victorian Engineer and I'm, I'm reaching out to a couple of other states but uh, this is a good listen. I mean a lot of a lot of the rules are nationwide for our engineering. Some of it's specific and, and New South Wales um, if you're not up to speed is going through some pretty unique situations at the moment but we have a good chat to Troy about all that so look forward to this interview. Uh, I apologise that last week we didn't get an episode out. I think it's the first week in uh, in the last 18 episodes that I've not managed to get one out. I, sometimes we can't quite get all the eggs in one basket when we're trying to line up interviews and uh, I can have one or two guys lined up and it doesn't always come through. And I'm not really a big fan of, of recording a whole bunch of them and, and having them sitting in the background. I, I think it's good to keep information fresh. So... Apologies for last week, and, and I want to put a big shout out to Tommy Gavin. Uh, he contacted me uh, as a more of a bit of a, um, a welfare check. He was a bit concerned that I hadn't put a podcast out, and I appreciate him reaching out to me. Uh, Tommy's building a really nice Chevy truck at the moment, so we'll probably have a chat to him at some time in the future. But uh, for the minute, just enjoy this podcast. It's it's uh, fairly long-winded, and there's a lot of technical information, but I think it's something that a lot of listeners will be interested in especially after listening to uh, Peter's situation in New Zealand. Uh, I think we certainly got it a bit better here in Australia, but I think at the moment, if you're in New South Wales, you've got the raw end of the deal, and, and I feel for you guys, and especially guys that are halfway through a build, um, having to sort of sit there and wonder what they're going to do because there's a bit of backtracking and, and we don't really know what's happening. But anyway, plenty of info in this podcast. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Troy, thanks for joining us on the Classic Pickup Podcast. Really good to have you on board. We've been trying to get hold of an engineer for a little while and um, and you came highly recommended. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Yeah, thank you. Now, um, we'll go back to where it all started for you. So, you know, as a young buck, what, what are your first memories of cars? Was was your old man a, a rev head or, or what sort of made you sit up and notice uh, when you were young? Well, my, my car career started when I was about six years old. Actually, Basically started at a racetrack called Oran Park um, in Sydney. My dad was in the my dad was in the cars, um, had you know in the Bathurst and racing and all that sort of stuff. Was pit crew for a, you know a number of um, a number of um, teams. You know one of the cars comes second outright at Bathurst, so you know pretty 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 good sort of a team. You know in in Wollongong back in the day, nineteen seventy two sort of thing. I don't remember much much of that. I wasn't around. 
you know, I was only two years old when that that all happened. But um, a lot of my a lot of my car memories from uh, when I was young was, you know, things like having Colin Bond's Monaro in our carport at home because it had been crashed, and Dad's mate, who was uh, the driver of the the car that crashed into it, um, had to fix it. So yeah, had nowhere to store it. It ended up in our it ended up in our carport at home, being fixed there. That you know, that's one of my memories. You know, GDHO Falcons. You know, sitting in you know three at a time, sitting in the driveway. You know, from that to you know, um, yeah, super sedan minis and all this sort of stuff as as a kid, and then sort of. Uh, most of the cars that my dad had at the time were, you know, like V8 Fairlanes and V8 Tiranas and all this sort of stuff. Straight from straight from that point there, straight to school, and then I sort of didn't appear to be so much interested in cars from that point in time. But uh, somebody one day bought a, a street machine magazine to school, and then during English class, as you do. You throw the street machine magazine around and you start reading it, and I got hooked. And every month after that, so that was the very first issue of um, Street Machine and Van Wheels, and I've been reading that magazine ever since. I've got, I've still got every magazine that I ever bought. And then um, had a chance to. Um, it was, oh, you know, come on, Dad sort of said, "Oh, come on, we'll go out and get you a car." I think I was fourteen at the time. We'll go and get you a car. All right, no worries. So he, we went looking around, and he found a um, he found a nineteen seventy four Celica that had had a, um, a well, like a nineteen eighty five two liter twin cam engine put in it. Um, so we had to go through the engineering process to get all that engineered and get it on the road and drivable and nice to drive. So I helped Dad out with that and whatever. And one thing led to another and. Basically, you know that car. That car was good, and then um, I learnt to drive in that car, and then you know, fanging it around that sort of thing. And um, Dad sort of said, "Well, you're not fanging my car around anymore." And I'm sort of going, "This is supposed to be my car. No, no, not your <laughs> car anymore. This is mine." But come on, we'll go out and get go out and get your car. And I'm sort of going, "Oh yeah, right. Here we go again." And um, so we went out and. Um, I went and got a bank loan and I went and bought a um, uh, XP Falcon Coupe, six-cylinder, stock, sort of sort of stock. And it was like, well, the idea is we're going to put a V8 in it. So we went and put a V8 in it, uh, done the disc brake conversion, all that sort of stuff. I'm 16 on my L's. Yeah, basically the rest is history. I sort of, I'd done that car up, got it on the, got it on the road, running around as a white, as a white XP coupe with a stock standard V8, and I ran that around for about 12 months. And I went up to the drags one day at Oran Park and um, raced it. Went well. Not super well, but went well. Used five litres of engine oil on the way home. And um, it was like I got home and I sort of said to Dad, I said, this thing used five litres of engine oil on the way home. He said, yep, the engine's no good. We better, we better rebuild you an engine. So that was the start of um, basically a full rebuild for that car. Turned turned into a turned into a blue um, XP Falcon Coupe, which that's my email address with a 500 horsepower um, 302 Windsor in it. Pretty stout car in its time. Ran 11.9 um, back in the day, back in about oh, probably 1991. So you know it was quick. It was a quick car in its time, 
And I sold that car about 10 years ago. Um, it was pretty hard to get rid of, but I sold it to build my 46 Dodge. I've built several cars in the meantime. I've, the XP Coupe was always there. Next car after that was a, um, the XP Coupe got too hard to drive every day. Basically, you know, race car on the road every day. Not a good thing. Not ideal. So um, I, uh, I went out and uh, I bought a, um, a 62 Falcon Futura. That was my second car. And it was just a bone stock, uh, 170, two-speed auto. So I painted it. I fixed the rust up in it, painted it, uh, trimmed it, uh, drove it around for 12, 12 months or so. Blew the gearbox up a couple of times, you know, repaired it. Did all the things you do when you're when you're young, you know, you know, wreck it, repair it, wreck it, repair it, and eventually I got sick of repairing it, so I sold it, and I bought a um, uh, Mark One GT Cortina. And out of all the cars I've owned, the Mark One GT Cortina is the the car that I still wish I had. Fifteen hundred four speed, full GT spec, four door. Uh, four-door GT. Yeah, so 200 horsepower uh, Cortina. A pen, basically, back in the day, what they call now Group N. Um, Appendix J was what it was called back then. Basically, you could take your uh, road car, race it in Appendix J. However, you were up against um, you were up against uh, the likes of lo like proper Lotus Cortinas and whatever. If you hadn't spent 30 or 40 grand on your car, you had no chance. So I ran around at the back of the pack there for a little while and, you know, in my in my road car with number plates and a roll cage sort of thing. And yeah. So I gave that up gave that up for a while and then um kept driving the car on the road and whatever, blew the engine up, couldn't afford to fix it. And then um I bought a XD uh Falcon Wagon, uh three oh two Cleveland, you know, automatic, you know, real grandpa spec station wagon thing. And drove that around for a while, and yeah, one thing led to another. Couldn't afford to run it. It was the terribleest thing on fuel. You know, I used to, I used to live about probably a kilometre and a half from work. Uh, I used to drive it to work and back every day, and that was the only place I went through and I went to. And I used eighty or ninety litres of fuel a week. It was horrible. Great car to drive, but couldn't afford to run it. So I sold that. Bought a XP Falcon Ute, and with the idea that. All I was going to do was put some 14-inch wheels on it, lower it a little bit, and stick some seat belts in it and drive it as my daily driver, drive it to and from work. Did did what I wanted to do with it and started driving it around. And then uh, I was driving home from work one day and this guy in a Commodore pulled out on me, wrote the front end off. Anyway, uh, took it to a repair shop and they turned around and said, it's a write-off. I went, well, you don't have an interest in it, so it can't be a write-off. Just pay me the money out and I'll um, I'll repair it myself. So they paid me out a fairly substantial amount of money for the for that ute. That paid for bodywork, paint, interior, a new motor, and a five-speed gearbox. So my ute was back on the road better than it ever was and that became my day, that became my daily driver for oh I owned that car for probably about eleven years um, and it went everywhere uh, Ballarat swap mate every year you know uh, Brisbane 
North Queensland. It went absolutely everywhere, that car. And I sold that. I sold that ute about 15 years ago. It was um, it was a sad day um, because, well, you know, I went everywhere in that car. Yeah. And um, after, yeah, after that, I I went into like mundane driving hell, I suppose you'd call it. Um, bought, an <laughs> AU, bought an AU Falcon, you know, family car because that's that's what was happening. Family was coming along and all that sort of stuff. Um, bought the AU Falcon, drove it around, and it was a great car. Never, ever let me down. Had plenty of power, LPG, cheap to run. When I bought it, the thing had like 15,000 Ks on it. So it was it was a new, it was essentially a new car. Then um, oh, I was starting to get a little bit long in the tooth. I had about 200,000 Ks on the clock and decided that it was um, it was time to time to sell it up and went back into mundane mundane car hell and bought a Mitsubishi Triton. Drove that around for a while, hated every minute of it. All the while, all the while, still had my XP coupe, and um, you know, and then child number two come along, and that that was uh, the catalyst for getting rid of the XP coupe. At the time, it was the highest selling XP coupe in Australia. I got forty grand for it, cheap now. Yeah. So I um, I got rid of it, and I bought I bought the Dodge body with the money that I had, and you know, and the idea was that I was going to play our the money from the coupe into the into the Dodge. In the meantime, I also had on the on the go a XP Falcon Fairmont, which was my wife's car, and it was her daily driver. About ten years prior, I'd turned around and said, "We'll fix the rust in it, and uh, I'll tidy the engine up for you, and we'll put it back on the road." Well, I hadn't been back on the road for ten years. <laughs> I'd built a whole bunch of other bits and pieces in the meantime. You know, yeah, just built bunches of stuff that always get, got kept um, put on the back burner. And built, uh, like started building the Dodge and the the rules were wasn't allowed to start on the Dodge until I painted the XP sedan. So we got that done and then the XP sedan painted, went back up under the house. Anyway, um, I um I got the Dodge done twelve months from start to finish. Day one to to day three sixty five finished. Well not finished, but registered on the road. End up using um so nineteen forty six Dodge body, forty six Dodge front end, um Chev C twenty chassis. The idea behind the Chev C twenty chassis was that it um not like a one tonner, it's a pair of chassis rails with a front end in it. Um, and a rear end in it. Uh, the idea was that it was going to be quicker and easier just to get it on the road fast um, so that I had something to drive. And then um, it was like, it turned, it was a bit of a bitzer. Um, Chev C20 chassis, uh, 302 Windsor that I had laying under the, under the, under the bench. Uh, C4 Auto also laying under the bench. The Chev diff was still in it. The um, Chev front end was still in it. And quick lick of paint on the on the chassis, basically unmodified. Plonk the Dodge body on top, a uh, couple of brackets to to mount it on some rubber mounts, make it nice and smooth. Mount the three hundred two in it, which was way easier than I thought it was ever going to be. It's only really sort of ended up a pair of engine mounts and a and an outrigger for a for a gearbox thrust member. It was too easy. 
Um, the original Chev drive shaft even fitted. Never didn't even have to modify that. Same length. Exact same length. Couldn't believe it. Just it just happened that way. If I tried to do it again, probably wouldn't happen. At this stage, what's your knowledge of engineering? My knowledge of engineering at this stage, well, I'm a you know mechanical engineer by profession. At this point in time, my knowledge of engineering is yeah good, but my knowledge of certification, yeah, learning. I wasn't at that point in time. I wasn't a um, I wasn't a certifying engineer. I was just an engineer working in a coal mine. Learned a lot from building that car. I also learnt a lot about the certifying engineers in our area and how bad they were and how their, how shall I put it, lack of knowledge to, you know, just odd, oddball, oddball stuff and rebodies and stuff like that, which weren't really common um, back then. Well, not as common as they are now. And basically at the end of that project, whilst um, going through the engineering process for that, for that truck, Somebody said to me, um, you know, and it was it was actually another one of the local engineers who I actually didn't use um, because I'd known him since I was a, I'd, I'd known him since I was a, I was a kid, and he sort of said to me, "Oh, look, it could be a bit of a conflict of interest if I engineer your car." Oh yeah, right, yeah. whatever, no problem. He said, "I oh, use this guy," so we used the guy that he suggested, and yeah, it turned into a bit of turned into a bit of a nightmare. He was difficult to talk to not very knowledgeable he wanted he wanted me to do all the calculations wanted me to do all the work um and then charge me all this money all this money for basically my work mm. so i wasn't very happy but it didn't matter i got the number plates and you know the truck got on the road sort of thing so was happy went back to working in the coal mine and driving my truck every day to and from um to and from the, the coal mine every day, which was a you know, which was an hour round trip every, you know, like there and back. So it's two hours driving every day. So the truck proved itself quite well. Anyway, I um I was working at the mine and um I get a phone call. Um and it was the RMS. We've you know, and they basically just said to me, Look, we understand that you're pretty good at, you know, engineering, blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And I went, Well, Oh, yeah, okay, right on. They said, we're looking for a new certifier in the air, in your area. We've had a guy retire. I went, oh, okay, right on. And I knew who that was. And I knew, I knew that he was retiring. Um, apparently, he'd put forward my name or something like that or whatever. And they said, oh, can you come and have a chat? And I, at the time, I wasn't particularly interested. So I, not, I, I turned him down. I said, yeah, you know, no. So... Another another month or two went by, and they rung back and said, "Look, you don't have to do it as a full time gig. You can do it, you know, little bit by little bit." I went, oh, "Okay, well, that's sounding better." They said, "Well, come and have a chat." So we went up. I went up there, had a talk to them, and um, basically at the end of the um, at the end of the um, well, we'll call it an interview, I suppose. They said, "When do you want to? When do you want to start?" And I went. I didn't know it was an interview. I thought we were just having a bit of a chat. They went, no, no, that was an interview. When do you want to start? And I said, well, whenever. And they said, well, we've got this new, we've got this new system coming out in about a month or two's time. Um, how about we put you in the intake for that, and you can just work whatever you want. Well, okay, no worries. So that was December two thousand and eleven, and. 
basically hit the ground running. I was doing two jobs, two jobs at once for a long time. Now, a lot of guys would remember me come, turning up to their, you know, to um, you know, engineer their cars in, you know, full full mind full mind sight um, work gear. Yeah. Um, you know, turning up turning up in my Dodge truck, you know, with my bag over my shoulder, you know, full mind sight gear. Yeah, you, know, you know, you know, you know, and they're, and they're, and they're going, oh, you know. You, I'll, I'll lay a blanket out for you so you can lay down. No, don't worry about it, mate. I've been laying in the dirt all day. Don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. You know, that sort of thing. That's better than turning up in a suit and a Camry or something like that. Well, that was the perception of a lot of engineers um, at the time as well. Um, it was a real – turning up in the Dodge truck was a real icebreaker. The most uh, – the biggest – most question, the question that I got asked most was, you don't look like an engineer. What does an engineer look like? I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. So you know, and then and it was like you know, and turn up the truck was the ice was an icebreaker. It seemed to relax a lot of people. Where you know, if I turned up in you know any anything else, if I drove, and if I drove up in any anything else, um, you know, you would get um, the, I suppose, a cold response. Where if you turned up and turned up in the hot rod, it was always oh wow look look what you're driving you know oh that's that's cool you know it was always something to talk about. I think that's still part of the perception is that a lot of guys think that they've got to find an engineer, and then they have to convince them that that what they're trying to do is a good idea. Whereas, you know, I yeah. think I think people would be surprised that that most guys who who do this sort of engineering, they're actually, you know, they're they're passionate about building stuff like this, and and they can actually help you because they've you know you would have seen a hundred trucks so you know every which way to do something um yep. i mean i'm sure there's engineers out there that are complete stiffs and they only want to do brand new bmws or something like that but there's plenty of guys like yourself who you know like you say you rock up in the dodge to my workshop and i'm building my chev i'll be like beautiful this guy's you know at least he's on board with what i'm trying to do because he's already doing it yeah that's right yeah yeah and that's and and that's that's a lot of the thing too i mean I worked for quite a few um, bigger companies that that all they do is build cars. They can talk to me, uh, and that's and that's what I get. You know that, that it's always oh you know like I actually like dealing with you because you know what I'm talking about. You know why we're doing this, and to to an extent, they're right. You know I, I do know what they're doing. I do know why they why they're doing it. Sometimes I shake my head and go, why are you doing that? And then try to explain my side of why, you know, what they're doing is a waste of time. And then, okay, certainly if they come up with a valid reason for wanting to do what they're doing the way they're doing, well, okay, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. You know, and, I, and you know, my way is not always the highway. You know, I'm open to plenty of different ideas. I mean, I, I don't know everything and I can't. Mm. But, um, you know, a lot of these other guys, I'll, They'll turn up and they, um, you know, they've got their perceived ideas and they've got their blinkers on. They they don't want to know about anything. They don't want to know how to do something. They don't, you know, they just want you to do what they tell you to do, and and that's it. Where yeah, you know, I'm not like that. Yeah, it's 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 written in their guidelines. This is exactly what you got to do. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It's, and it's. And I think that's where a lot of frustration comes from from builders out there is that 
you know, I've spoken to guys who they've had one engineer that they've been using for a while and then for whatever reason that that's broken down, whether that engineer's retired or passed away or they've got the shits of each other. And then they go to another engineer and they're like, no, that's not right. That's not right. And it's like, well, you, you're both New South Wales engineers. I don't understand. But, you know, there's there's obviously a certain amount of how how you read a rule or how you read how things are done. There's there's not a, a blanket 100% this is black and white, is there? Oh, no, no, there, there isn't. Um, but we all um, are supposed to be working off the same playbook. Um, mm. We all have um, VSB fourteen. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that with that document because that's a that's a national document. Yeah. But as far as New South Wales goes, we have um, a break assessment manual, which, like it or not, is what we're supposed to use. Um, we have other methods. You know, there is also two other methods of um, of testing breaks. You know, the ADR is one of them, um, which is not very well favoured because it's very difficult to very difficult to use. Uh, VSB fourteen is another one, and VSB fourteen is a very good um, document for pre ADR cars. The brake assessment manual, which is supposed to um, uh, supposed to cover the whole lot and is supposed to be easier than VSB fourteen and easier than the ADR, currently is not too bad. It's got a few tests in there that I don't particularly like, but Look, it's we can do it on a public road, uh, for the most part. Um, where VSP fourteen, um, you know, has got a couple of tests there that are one hundred and sixty k's an hour. Can't do that in a public road. Got to hire a racetrack no. for that. You know, at this stage for a modified production vehicle, our brake assessment manual goes to eighty k's an hour. So it's a usable document. We're all and we're all supposed to be using. Like I said, we're all supposed to be working off the same playbook. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that probably brings us into um, throwing a few engineering questions at you. And I, w- I just wanted to make make the point for our listeners. You know, Troy, Troy hasn't seen your vehicle, so Troy's not telling you how to do your vehicle. Troy's talking about some general engineering guidelines, and and we definitely want to uh, make sure you understand that anything he tells us is a guide for you to take to your engineer for you to work out specifically for your vehicle. So. We're going to have a good chat. We're going to go through some stuff, but it's not, oh, Troy said this on a podcast, so I'm going to do it. You need to go and do your own homework and work with your own engineer. So first thing I want to just throw at you, and I mean, you, you've been there and done it in the past, but you know, let's say you've come across your uh, 46 Dodge cab, wherever you found that, and uh, it's on its original chassis. Maybe it's just, you know, you've pulled it out of a paddock and it's an old, you know, one-time farm truck or something like that. What what would you say right now? What If you were going to build it, what chassis would you use? At this point in time, my chassis of choice would be the original chassis. Um, you've got a lot more latitude to do uh, things that you want to do. If it was if my Dodge truck was if I if I had the original chassis I probably would have used it but I didn't have that choice. Yeah. But these days if I found my Dodge truck with its original chassis I probably would have put uh, a Jag front end in it. I'm a bit partial to uh, Falcon one tonner rear ends at the moment. Um, they seem to be a good width. They fit up nice. Leaf springs, all that sort of stuff. Nice, easy, nice and cheap. Nice and cheap rear end and engine. Uh, on a dodge, you know, a dodge chassis or whatever, you can you've got your engine of your choice. You want to put an LS in it, not a problem. You want to put a Barra Turbo in it, not a problem. If you want to put a 350 Chev in it, not a problem. You want to put a 351 Windsor or Cleveland in it, 
not a problem. You want to put a big block in it, no dramas. Yeah, and, and is that because that chassis is pre-68? Is that the reason for that? Yeah, correct, 100%. Pre, you know, 1946 model chassis, separate chassis, truck, uh, commercial grade chassis. We'll take anything you like. Take anything you want to throw at it. Yeah, and then just basically upgrade the rest of the um, the rest of the truck to suit door locks, steering column, you know, seat belts, seats, etc., etc., etc. Realistically, the sky's your limit as far as you want to go. Spend as much money on it as you like, or you know, within reason, as little money as you like. Um, depends on what you can scrounge from a wrecking yard. And so, so for a guy that's listening to us, maybe he's just got into this. You know, maybe he hasn't even got a truck yet, and he just he'd like to build one, and he thinks, "Oh, this would be awesome." Why why can't he go and get a 2015 Ford Ranger that's been rolled over, ditch the body off that, and put the Dodge chassis on that? Why is that a problem for him? Okay, so 2015, you've basically got ADR one, uh, third edition Australian design rules, right through to ADR eighty three. Your Ford Ranger, your 2015 Ford Ranger. Uh, Airbags, stability control, the list goes on. Um, how do you prove that that stuff works? You can't. There is no method of testing stability control um, for something like that. And there is no method of testing uh, whether the airbags still work. That chassis must comply with those Australian design rules, whether you've got the Ranger, the Ranger body on it or whether you've got a, Dodge bo- a 46 model Dodge body on it. It has to comply with that. Yeah. That's why... We, you te- you're not going to see uh, too many um, late model chassis under early model trucks. You just can't make them comply. Yeah. So, so the key goal really is, let's say we don't have our original chassis. What you want to do is is get something that's that's got some fairly modern handling, but is as early as possible. Hence, you know why something like a HQ chassis is such a popular swap. Yeah. Correct. The HQ chassis is probably the most popular um, chassis that I'm seeing at the moment. You know, like up until probably six months ago, or maybe more, maybe 12 months ago, um, the rules for a rebody like that were fairly lenient. Um, you could put an LS into it. You could put four-wheel disc brakes, a nine-inch diff, all that sort of stuff into it. Now, um, you're still going to get your... You're still going to get your modern handling, and you're still going to get more modern brakes. You, you know, a HQ one tonner still has fairly decent brakes, although it's not going to be the four-wheel disc brakes that you want. But uh, these days, in New South Wales anyway, a rebody is just that. It's a it's a old body onto a stock chassis um, with a stock drive line. So you sort of you sort of you sort of stuck with that at the moment um, until we can sort of sort something out. That's what you're stuck with. Great chassis. Works for a lot of um, works for a lot of uh, truck cabs. The forty-eight through to fifty-four Chev cab is a very popular sha- uh, cab uh, to be putting those on because you don't have to have you can fit running boards on them. They still look like they're reasonably standard because they're a fairly wide cab. A truck like my forty-six model Dodge, uh, the chassis actually sits on the outside of the cab, uh, so you got to make all this funky, um, you know running boards and you know step up bits and whatever and they, they never ever look right uh under early model trucks because they're just so so skinny yeah but um you know there is there's a lot of a lot of trucks being built out there at the moment that are still being rebodied uh one of the ones i noticed you've got um a dual cab 
54 something behind you. I'm actually doing one of those at the moment uh, on an F250 chassis, like a yeah. like a two. I think it's a uh, 1989 or a 1988 model F250 chassis, and it's been chassis extended. It's going to be a it's going to be a, um, a horse float hauler. It's going to be a really nice bit of gear. Once again, 6.3 liter diesel engine, you know, six speed automatic, all that sort of stuff, or whatever you know, whatever it came with. There's more than just the one ton of chassis out there. The Hilux is another popular uh, version. Once again, earliest model Hilux chassis you can. I've done one or two on uh, old um, Chevy Love uh, chassis. Oh, yeah. Kind of short, but, you know, kind of short, but, you know, they were pretty pretty cool little short pickup truck thing. And um, I had somebody ring me the other day, wanted to put something on the Morris Minor chassis. But the rebody thing goes further than, you know, just our pickup trucks. You know, like it's it's also um, it's also the V-Dub guys mm. where they will take a stock standard V-Dub floor pan sh- chassis drive line and put a, uh, a fiberglass Porsche body on top. So the rebody side of it is not just our pickup trucks. It's it's a lot it's a lot wider. Yeah. And and so, I mean, I'm in Victoria, so New South Wales rules, I suppose, in a lot of ways. I could say that I don't care about them, but I do because I care about the whole, um, I'm going to call it a sport, whatever whatever it is we're doing. So if, if my understanding is right at the moment, if if you want to put, let's say I've got a 52 Chevy pickup truck cab and I want to put it on a HQ chassis, right now in New South Wales, I need to keep that HQ chassis 100% stock original engine, original suspension, original brakes, original everything, and then I can do the rebody, and that's fairly straightforward if I just do that? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, it's fairly straightforward. You've still got to, um, you've got to comply with the Australian design rules of the chassis. So if you use, let's say you use a HQ, for example, you've only got to have the stuff that the, HQ's, that the HQ had. So collapsible steering column, burst-proof door locks, rear vision mirrors, heated demister, Safety glass, sun visors, kilometre per hour speedo, lighting—you know—the list goes on. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of other little bits and bobs. None of it's really difficult to do. Yeah, as long as you choose the right equipment. Yeah, correct. Uh, New South Wales RMS have now deemed that, that sort of thing. Is an ICV, individually constructed vehicle. So as an individually constructed vehicle, right at this time, um, an individually constructed vehicle has to comply with everything 2020. Not a great area to be in because somehow you've got to prove all that. Uh, you've got to prove how it complies. That's not easy. Okay. No, no, that's <laughs> that's pretty hard with a 1972 uh, technology. So... So if if I'm building something in New South Wales, uh, I've got that 52 Chev truck. I've put it on a, a 72 HQ chassis with an original 308 in it. Everything's original. You sign it all off and engineer it on the road. Then I want to go and put an LS1 in it. We do that, follow all the rules and go back and engineer it again. I'm happy to pay twice. Is that the way people need to go about that now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. There's there's no there's no reason no reason that that can't be done. So that, that's not an individually constructed vehicle. It's still two to, two times modified production. Right, and and if I wanted to 
upgrade the suspension at the same time as the engine, can we do that in one hit or is that a separate engineering again? No, that can be done in one hit. Done a few done a few of those where, you know, rebody is rebody's been done, you know, with a I did a Hilux with a um, stock standard four cylinder in it. Um, the guy wanted to put um, the guy wanted to put a uh, what did he put in? I think he put a two eighty three Chevy in it or something. So we done that, and then he um, he, he took the torsion bar suspension out, put coilovers in, and um, I think he put um, I think he put airbags in the back of it or something, something like that. Yeah, and completely legit, no problem there. Yeah, okay. So so say I'm in Victoria. I'm doing everything I want to do to my vehicle in one hit and I'm getting one engineering certificate. But right now the recipe in New South Wales is just do a straight rebody on the original chassis and running gear, get that engineered and then come back and do your, your extra stuff afterwards. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Oh, that's cool. I mean, look, it's, it sounds like a complete pain in the ass, but the rules are the rules and we've just got to follow <laughs> them really, don't we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, look, we, we don't make the rules. We only follow them. And that's, yeah, some people don't understand that. And if the rules change when you're halfway through your build, so be it. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to change also. It's a, sad, it's a sad fact of life, but that's just the way it is. So if, I, if I've just been to America last year and I went to SEMA and I had a walk around and I fell in love with an Art Morrison chassis and I went, that's what I want. I've ordered that and it's made its way back here to Australia and I want to put my Chev cab on it. How big a nightmare is that? Massive. That's 2020 ICV territory. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, wow. That's just, yeah, you're not the, you're not the only person that saw that. And yeah, good idea. Art Morrison makes good chassis. I was in SEMA last year and I was, you know, I looked, I looked at, looked at them as well. They, they do. You know, they do good stuff. Art Morrison's not the only one. There's plenty of others out there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They do real they yeah, they do they do make really nice really nice chassis and they um they put some they put some nice effort into them and um they get them steering and handling right and they do all sorts of all sorts of stuff. But at the end of the day, um putting that chassis underneath your classic truck, it, it doesn't make it a classic truck anymore. It makes it a it makes it a twenty twenty truck. Um because what there's no part of there's no part of that chassis that is um, you know 1950 something or 40 something or whatever. So let's say we've got a chassis, and this is obviously not going to make any sense. But let's say it's a meter long, right? Yep. And how much of that chassis, in your opinion, do you have to retain for that to be the original chassis? Is there a number? You know, if I wanted to. Let's say we've done our our straight over body swap onto our HQ chassis. We've done all that. It's engineered, and then I want to come into you and and say, I want to, you know, whether it's a a front cut off a HR or it's a front cut off a a C10 Chevy or something, and I I want to I want to splice the two chassis together at the front. Is there a percentage of a chassis that has to be original? Yeah, um, at, and at this point in time in New South Wales, it's two main chassis rails and a front and rear cross member. So pretty much nearly 100% of your meter long chassis has to be original for it to be, to be considered an original vehicle. What I'd need to do then is to take the HR front clip off the Holden chassis and put it on my chassis, retaining my chassis rail. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And that's the, 
it's the same process we use for um, fitting a Jag front end to, you know, like to, to a truck chassis, to a 46 Chev chassis, to a 46 Dodge chassis. You know, we put, a, you know, a removable Jag front end in, it's bolted in or it's welded in, whatever, and it still retains 100% of the chassis. That front end, that independent front end is just a bolt-in item. Uh, you've just removed the original suspension and front end and steering, and you've just bolted in um, a new independent front end with better handling characteristics, etc. And then, if I wanted to C notch the rear, because after, say, I plan on airbagging this truck, and yep. that'll involve C notching the rear so I can lay frame. Uh, I'm going to use a HQ chassis because that's what I got. I do the rebody first. I can't touch that. I can't notch that chassis at that point, can I? No. At this at this at this point in time, um, chassis notches are a little bit frowned upon uh, in New South Wales. Whilst there's a few people still getting away with it, the the we have this document called VSI fifty three, and basically VSI fifty three says that if any part of um, the chassis profile has been altered, the vehicle is considered an ICV. So basically by notching your chassis up, that's that's what you're doing. You're altering the profile of the chassis. And at this point in time, that's we're stuck with that. They've they've bought this VSI fifty three in two or three times now. It's been knocked it's been kicked out a couple of times. Um, but at this point in time, it's still there. The very first version of that one was probably the most liberal and um, yeah sort of be good if we could get back to that one but at the moment we're not so yeah so chassis notches and stuff like that at the moment not a very not a very good sort of area to be in we um you know i tested the waters a little while back with a chat with a chassis in consultation with the rms and um yeah didn't end well uh and that was 100 of the original 100 of the original chassis but i believe now from what i from what people have told me is from you know, within the RMS organisation, um, that that vehicle would be would be registered as it's as what it was now, if that car was built today. So whether it's been relaxed, I don't know. Can't answer that. And and have have you had much to do with some of these uh, bolt or welding independent front and rear ends that are coming out of the states? Companies like. Uh, Porter built and chop and block and and those sort of guys. Do you know? Have you had anything to do with that stuff? Yeah, I've done a lot of research on the um, on the Porter built stuff um, back in the early days of um, you know of when the classic trucks started coming in and um, you know airbags and you know laying laying a C ten on the ground and all that sort of stuff. Um, I researched the Porter built front end and rear end. The rear end um, sort of puts you into ICV territory because. Basically, you've got to cut the back end of the um, of the original chassis off and put the weld the portabilt uh, rear end or bolt the portabilt rear end back onto it. So once again, there you go. You've got a you've got a rear you've got a rear chassis clip. So you're, you're in that you're in that in that bad area again. Um, front end the portabilt front end doesn't look too bad, um, and it's a bolt-in affair. Um, it should be okay to use once again check with your engineer on that one because you're going to need um, engineering paperwork to support the fitment of that front end, um, which is a big problem with a lot of American stuff is, um, you know, you you say to the customer, oh, get me 
get me some engineering documentation or paperwork on um, on your front end that you're using. And um, the answer that 100% of the time comes back um, from the Porter Builds, the Chopping Blocks, um, the Art Morrisons, um, all these people. Uh, oh yeah, we've built thousands of these. We've got thousands of these things on the road. We've never needed an engineering report. Okay, that don't help us. Um, if push comes to shove here, if something happens, the first thing that's going to get asked for is an engineering report on the on that chassis and its um, suitability uh, for, to be put on Australian roads or New South Wales roads anyway. That's all I can talk for. I'll just, I'll just keep throwing these examples out there. So, uh, we don't, I think I'll talk about from now on because I think guys who are halfway through a build and they're bleeding right now, we'll, we'll have a chat about that later. But so, yeah. so right now I'm in New South Wales. I've got my HQ chassis. I got my 52 Chev cab on it. I'm driving around. Everything's engineered. All right, let's go back. I want to do my LS and I want to airbag this thing and I want to lay it on the ground. Whether or not I can do a notch uh, or how I get around doing that, I'm going to four link it. I'm going to do a custom, you know, and it's all going to somehow we've worked it around and you're happy with it. So it's going to work. Yep. What What is the current situation with, you know, the 100 mil rule for a vehicle in Australia? You know, you need to, if you're driving on the road, you have to have a 100 mil clearance under your vehicle, right? Yeah, correct. So is there a restriction or how do you go around, like are there 100 mil bump stops? How do I have a truck that can lay frame on the grass when I'm parked, but when I'm driving, it has to be 100 mil? How does an engineer look at that and, and say, this is how you do it and this is what's okay? Yeah, right. So for an airbag, for an airbag car like that, um, you have to have compliant bump stops. Uh, you have to have like a suspension limiting device. Um, so basically what that does is stops the suspension from sitting on the ground. The car when parked doesn't need to be 100, 100 millimeters off the ground. Now, the reason behind that is that every single Mercedes Benz that runs around on airbags, when the airbags are deflated, these things sit about an inch off the ground. We're in the same boat. We don't need, we don't need to um, maintain four inches of ride height uh, when we're parked, um, we can't hit the ground. We can't be sitting on the ground because if you have um, a complete failure of your airbag system, be it blow a main hose, whatever, whatever it is, you know, blow all four bags at once, who knows, whatever happens. You need to be able to get the vehicle off the road uh, under its own power without, without it sort of, you know, without needing a crane to get the thing off the road. So the New South Wales suspension manual basically um, says that, yeah, the vehicle with like an airbag vehicle with it, or with all its um, air out of its system only needs to not hit the ground. Um, so okay. lane frame can't really happen, but you can have you can have ground clearance as long as it as long as it moves without all its air in the system, no problem. Um, the air system needs to be interlocked to the handbrake or the park, park, you know, like gear shift or something like that. And the ride control um, needs to be automatic and not manual. So gone are the days of, you know, eight um, toggle switches to move your, um, your airbags up and down, this, that and the other. They're, those days are gone. You need to use something, oh, <laughs> I'd like to say AccuAir, but they're not around anymore. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, something like airlift or whatever, 
um, where as soon as you put the as soon as you t- uh, pull the handbrake off, um, the the vehicle goes to you know reverts back to four inches off the ground or you know it's it's legal ride height. And then when you pull up, pull the handbrake on, hit your button, dump all the air. There you go. You park. Yeah. Okay. So so the number one thing is I'm flying down the highway at 100. All my airbags blow at once. My rear pumpkin doesn't dig in and send me spinning around because I'm I'm at least off the ground. That's the whole deal. 100%. Yep. Complete 100% uh, safety. Um, you know, could you imagine what would happen if some of these um, airbag mini trucks, you know, blow off, blow even the back ones? Yeah, it's gonna end, not going to end well. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Um, all right, next question. Door locks with burst-proof latches and that sort of thing. You know, I, I speak to some guys who who have got an original chassis and, you know, say say it's a – let's share the love a bit. Let's say it's a an old international pickup truck. Uh, it's on an original chassis, but their engineer still wants them to have double-action burst-proof door locks. Is that – is that that individual engineer's decision, or is that just the you know where does that stand in the ADRs? Oh, well, for an, for an early international, it doesn't actually come under um, Australian design rules. So what it comes under is Vehicle Standards Bulletin 14, um, which is the document we mostly work to for for something like that. So what you end up with is a situation where you've got a KB5 international, uh, for example, um, you've put a 350 in it. You've put, uh, you know, turbo 350, 400, whatever. Uh, you've got a nine-inch diff in it. You've got four-wheel disc brakes, this, that, and the other. You then are required because you've then now gone 20% above power or uh, cubic inches. Um, you're then required to do um, VSB 14 minimum standards. Now, every engineer that, well, most engineers will turn around and go, Okay, minimum standards. Everybody knows that minimum standards standards are collapsible steering column, which is hence the OCD Metalworks Alien Retro columns. These guys are around doing that stuff, um, or you know the highly sought after XY Falcon, you know steering column that looks like the original column. Uh, HQ, all these collapsible columns out of an OEM car. I did it, make collapsible steering columns, flaming river, make them. Then, uh, you know, the other minimum standards are, you know, things like heated to mist stuff. Uh, and it comes down to um, a bunch of modern standards, which realistically, let's face it, they're not that modern. You know, I'm 50. Uh, I was born in 1970. Collapsible steering columns come out in about 1968. So, you know, the standards we're working to are still, you know, over 50 years old. So, you know, these things are things that they've, um, they've called for. VSB 14 is a document that's been around since uh, probably the late 80s, I suppose. And back then they called for this stuff. So collapsible steering column, heated demister, rear vision mirrors, um, inertia rear lap sash, lap sash safety belts, you know, seat mounting points that meet a, a standard. Um, the standard is written in VSB 14. Burst-proof door locks... Um, is one is a standard. It calls for it calls for fail-safe double latching door locks. Now, if you put a second latch on a on your door on your house, it's still not really fail-safe because when the body flexes, it flies open. So, ninety percent of the engineers out there will ask for burst-proof burst-proof door locks. 
uh, for that reason. And the best way to go about that, especially in you know uh, later model, well, we'll call them later, uh, later model um, pickup trucks, i.e. 50 model um, Chevs, Fords, that sort of thing with fairly decent doors, you'll end up with an engineer going, use Hilux or something like that because they're out of an OEM car. Uh, they're already been um, complied to uh, an Australian design rule. It's something we don't need to prove. Then, um, you know, you get to your early models where we'll still ask for burst-proof door locks. Um, and in a steel car, you can still use a mini, uh, like a, a mini bear claw, which will fit inside inside most um, original doors. I've just done some mini bear claws into a 38 Dodge door. They fitted really well. Um, they work well. And they're cheap. You can pick up a pair of mini bear claws for ninety odd dollars. You know, are they good? Yeah, they're okay. Do they fail? Yeah, often. But you know, you can still you can still use them. They still meet um, the ADR. They're basically the same door locks that are in um, Kenworths, and they're basically the same door locks that are in most um, of your uh, your off highway um, excavator equipment stuff like that. They work okay. By and large, the most popular ones I see at the moment are Hilux. I used a set of door locks out of a Kia in mine. And the only reason I found those is I was hunting around the wrecking yard and there was a Kia there. And I opened the door and had a look inside and went, oh, that looks like it could work. That's what I used. All right. Well, it's been, been a good chat with a lot of good information. And um, I hope you don't feel like you're getting grilled too much. <laughs> nah, look, happens every day, mate. Happens yeah, every yeah. day. Well, hopefully, hopefully we're um, answering a few questions for, for a lot of people out there. Um, so I guess the last question I, I want to touch on and, and is something that a lot of guys in New South Wales are, are probably keen, and I'm sure that they're way more educated than me right now, is that, you know, they're halfway through their build. They, they've been building this truck two or three years. You know, they've got, they've got an LS in it. They've, they've done all sorts of upgrades. They've, you know, we've got Willwood brakes on there and all sorts of things. And, and all of a sudden the game's changed again and they've been left in limbo, you know. And a lot of guys have spent a shit ton of money and it's sitting in their shed right now and they're just saying, what the fuck am I going to do? Uh, obviously, I don't want you to answer that question 100%, but, I mean, what what's your advice right now? Is your advice, hey, just sit tight for a few months, let's see what happens? Is your advice go buy an original HQ chassis and start again. Uh, you know, what do you feel like is the situation for these guys? Um, the way I feel in this situation at the moment is that these guys are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Legislation has sort of let them down a little bit where they don't have, they really don't have an, they don't have an out. And the, the, the wheels of government work really, really slowly. Um, my advice at the moment would be to, if you can, sit back and wait. Uh, but is sitting back and waiting going to be a quick option? I don't know. I can't answer that. Look, it could happen next year. It might be five years. It might be eight years. We don't know how long it's going to be. I could, you know, if you if you come across another HQ Shaggy that is cheap, certainly buy it uh, and use it. And get your and get your classic truck on the road because we all want to see, you know, these old trucks on the road. They've got to be they've got to be on the road. They deserve it. Yeah. And then, and then everyone in Victoria is going to be buying really cheap, well manufactured high end chassis out of New South Wales. 
also, and the Queenslanders and the Tasmanians and the South Australians and the Western Australians also. We're by, we're by ourselves. And, and do you think there's a danger of other states following suit here? Yep. Yeah. yeah. History has shown that, um, you know, Victoria up until probably oh, 15, 20 years ago had the most liberal uh, laws as far as vehicle standards goes in Australia. They toughened up. They toughened up a little bit. And you're, you're in a situation at the moment where, yeah, your laws are, yeah, they're, they're okay. They're a little bit tough, but not super tough. New South Wales has just gone the complete opposite direction. They've just gone straight up to, um, you know, 100% super tough, don't, don't want anything modified on the road, whatever. Um, they'll, tell, they'll tell you um, that, you know, yeah, yeah, no problem. Just talk to your certifier. But then it's us guys that get hammered. But, um, you know, yeah, Queensland, you know, I don't know what's going on I'm up there. I don't know much about Queensland. I see a lot of stuff comes down here that realistically, you know, has, a, has one of their mod plates on it and realistically shouldn't be on the road. You know, it comes out of Queensland. It could might as well come out of America. You know, and we've all seen car, you know, hot rods that have come out of America that shouldn't be on the road. South Australia, South Australia, South Australia is a different kettle of fish. Um, every model, every modified vehicle in South Australia has got to go through um, their Regency Park, their Regency Park depot of the of the um, RMS. A lot of the stuff that I see comes out of there is built to a very very high standard, um, and a lot of the time goes goes through pretty qu pretty quick, pretty easy. Yeah, no, that's cool. All right, well, we might start wrapping it up. So, so from everything I've heard from you. You said that you've barely heard of a vehicle being registered as an ICV in the last four years. So, I, yeah, so I, I imagine there's a, you know, I'm walking along the landscape, there's this massive hole and down the bottom of that ICV land. And what, what we're saying is you don't want to go in there. You do not want to be there. That's a place that, it's a place that hundreds of thousands of dollars get spent and they just sit and sit and sit and sit. The last ICV that was registered in New South Wales was a tube frame single seat uh, aerial atom style car. It's one that I registered it. Um, I got it through, but let me tell you, it soaked up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of my time, for which a lot of it I didn't get paid for. But in the end, it became a challenge. It became, you know, oh, I'm not letting this go. This is this thing. This thing's going through just to prove that. It can be done. Yes, it can be done. And if you're willing to, if you're willing to take it on, certainly, I'm here to help you. But let me tell you, it ain't going to be cheap. Um, you know, it's yeah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. So if people want to get in touch with you or or um, or check out your truck and that sort of stuff, uh, you've got a Facebook presence with the business. It's uh, yeah, Think Engineering, F I N K. Yeah, that's correct, mate. Yeah. Yep, and there's a website. No, there's no there's no website. I'm only working off Facebook at the moment, and I'm, I really don't have too many plans to um, get a website. Um, I'm in the process of changing my email address, so I may have to get an email a uh, website just so that I can change my uh, email address. But yeah, Facebook is it at the moment. There is a message um, section on that, but yeah, I'd advise you to ring me instead of messaging because. It takes me a long time to get back to you as far as messages go. Yeah. And um, yeah, but yeah, check out my check out my Facebook page. A lot of stuff on there that what we do. 
we don't only do the classic trucks. We do your um, street machines, your hot rods, motorbikes, disabled vehicles. Uh, trucks is a big part of uh, my business as well. So, you know, we're talking, you know, heavy trucks, you know, like your Kenworth chassis extensions, repairs, that sort of thing. Yeah, and we do everything from, you know, 150-ton cranes down to I did a um, uh, a 150cc Honda the other day. So it's everything. The whole gambit. Yep. Oh, that's great. Well, mate, really appreciate you coming on and um, and hopefully uh, clearing up a few questions for people and a bit of education. And I love your truck. I think it's a beauty and uh, and we share exactly. a good suspension. So... <laughs> yes we do <laughs> but um <laughs> you need yeah, to put so, uh, on the back of yours now yeah well that may all happen i don't know yet we'll uh mm. we'll wait till i load it up i've got to wait and see how much it weighs you know it's got a cummins in it it's got a it's getting a yeah. bit of weight in it so i want to um i want to have the highest towing capacity that i can get really with it that's the goal so yeah. we'll see what happens yeah mm. cool gotta put it across across the way bridge at the end and see where we're at yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Troy. Well, thanks again for chatting with us and um, and we look forward to uh, to New South Wales sorting their shit out. Yeah, let's hope so. Hope it happens sooner rather than later. Thanks very much Absolutely. for having me. Thanks, mate. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All information shared in our episodes is general and you should contact your engineer for advice on your build. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with friends and fellow enthusiasts on Facebook, iTunes, or the good old word of mouth. I appreciate hearing feedback, good and bad, so please feel free to shoot me an email, classicpickuppodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in advertising on the podcast and have a relevant business, please get in touch. And finally, if you have a project you're building, it can be hard to find the time to work on it. Just spend 15 minutes a day Even if you only unbolt one panel or mount one bracket, you'll be amazed at how quickly it all adds up. The music you hear in the background of this podcast is called Hammer On Down by Uncle Bonehead. Until next week, enjoy the ride.